Good morning, everybody. If you go ahead and you can turn uh, your Bible to Luke chapter 14, verse 25. <clears throat> yeah, as they were singing that song about the word, I was thinking, what would the church look like if we really lived out uh, the word, you know, believing that the word is really what the word, uh, you know, what scripture says, it's God's word. Uh, I think we'd see lives changed. Um, I think that a lot of the pittiness that we see in church, church life and Christian life uh, would probably be eliminated. Uh, well, speaking of the word, we're going to be coming out of Luke. Uh, this is not a very popular passage. Uh, as a matter of fact, it, it's, not a very pas- it's not a very popular passage to preach. Um, it's, it's fairly heavy. And uh, I can tell you, this isn't one that I would just jump out and choose. Um, I've been reading through Luke in my, in my personal quiet time, and uh, I was not able to get past these uh, ten verses. Um, and as you'll see, we're talking about being a biblical disciple. Now, in, Christian, in American Christianity particularly, what we are seeing is a divergence. Okay, we're, we're seeing what American Christianity says it is to be a disciple, and we're seeing what the Bible says it is to be a disciple. Those Those paths are beginning to diverge, creating this giant gray area. It's a gray area uh, made up of people claiming to be believers of Christ, but therein not changing anything in their life, not living a regenerated life, being a new creation in Christ. And really, I believe that the church is aiding aiding this. I believe that the church, and what we're going to see is that the church is honestly... We have made our own gospel. What we have done, rather than going to Scripture and seeing what the gospel is, we have made a more watered down, a more comfortable, as Pastor David Platt says, it's a a more comfortable middle class Jesus. Okay, This middle class comfy Jesus, he doesn't call us to suffering. He doesn't call us to persecution, uh, but simply coming to church. Okay, in this, in this man-made gospel, we see the church, we see believers or people that call themselves believers, they, they want to claim the benefits of salvation. They want to claim the benefits and, and reap the benefits of knowing Christ, but not, not any of that hard stuff because really that's not very comfortable. And as a matter of fact, I might have to possibly move some things aside in my life in order to live as Jesus commands. Uh, so there's this giant gray area. I think uh, that a, a, a 14th century German monk describes it best. His name's Thomas Van Kempen. Jesus hath now many lovers of his heavenly kingdom, but few bearers of his cross. He hath many desirous of his consolation, but few of tribulation. He, find, he findeth many companions of his table, but few of his abstinence. All desire to rejoice with him. Few are willing to endure anything for him or with him. Many follow Jesus unto the breaking of bread, but few to the drinking of the cup of his passion. Many reverence his miracles. Few follow the ignominy of his cross. This 14th century Catholic monk, he nailed it. 
And, and really what he did in, in, the, in the late 1300s is he described our present day. Uh, you know, we see it. We see this gray area in the church. We see this gray area in, in our friends' lives, and our family's lives, maybe even in our own lives. And, and it's this willingness, it's this quickness to go, okay, Jesus, I see what you've done for me. I want it, but not willing to depart from our own will, our own ways. So, if you notice the title, it's Biblical Disciples in Black and White. And, you know, just trying to make a word play here, there's a, a large gray area in the church, but what we see is in Scripture, Christ does not give us a gray area. As a matter of fact, he gives us a very black and white picture of what a disciple is, and it's either you are or you are not. And uh, in church, I'm, I'm just going to be real honest with you. This is a heavy text. And I'm just going to ask you to just kind of put your seatbelts on, and we're going to roll, because um, I've got about 30 minutes, and uh, I'm going to try. I might get through half the sermon, but we're going to roll on with it. So, if you would turn and uh, to Luke chapter 14 and read with me. I'm sorry, I do not have a New American Standard, so just bear with me. The new the Holman is pretty close to the New American Standard, so um, just read with me. Verse 25. Now great crowds were traveling with him, so he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brother and sister, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you wanting to build a tower doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, after he has laid the foundation and cannot finish it, all the onlookers will begin to make fun of him, saying, this man started to build and wasn't able to finish. Or what king going to war against another king will not first sit down and decide if he is able with 10,000 to oppose the ones who come against him with 20,000? If not, while the other is still far off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. In the same way, therefore, every one of you who does not say goodbye to all his possessions cannot be my disciple. Verse 34. Now salt is good, but if salt should lose its taste, how will it be made salty? It isn't fit for the soil or for the manure pile. They throw it out. Anyone who has ears to hear should listen. Pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, you are the one true God. These are your words, your very uh, inspired words that you spoke into existence. Lord, they are not here by chance or accident, but very purposefully for us so that we can live a life glorifying you. And I pray that as we go through this text, God, that you would just move me and my utterings aside uh, and that you would allow your Holy Spirit to guide through this text. Lord, I, I just pray that the, the people would, would hear your words and not mine. And I pray that hearts would be opened uh, to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Okay, so what we see in this text is is an account of a large crowd following Jesus. Now, Jesus, he wasn't a big fan of large crowds. 
uh, because he understood the hearts of the men and women following him. Okay, so he's got this large crowd. The majority of the crowd is following just kind of to follow. They're kind of doing what everybody else is doing. Okay, and Jesus knows this. He knows that they are more than likely not genuine followers of him. And so just imagine Jesus walking down this road, and he turns to this large crowd and says, Hey, you, if you want to follow me, hate your family. Hate yourself and pick up your cross and follow me. Now, I heard it best described by a pastor. His disciples are going, no, Jesus, no, Jesus, no. How are we going to get on, the, on the, you know, the world's fastest Christian movement when you're telling people to hate their family, you know, pick up a cross, and follow you? But see, Jesus, he wasn't looking for numbers. He wasn't looking for, for quantity. But he was looking for the few that would follow him. And so, as he turns to the crowd, what we see in the first couple verses, in, in verses 26 through 27, is basically a description of the characteristics of a biblical disciple, a true disciple. In verse 26, it says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brother and sister, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, did you guys notice when we read the text, there was something that kind of kept coming up. What was it? You cannot be. That's right. He makes an emphasis three times on you cannot be. And the first one is if, if you don't hate your family. Now, church, hear me out loud. This is not Christ being contradictory to the rest of the word of God. He's not telling us to go hate our family. But what he is telling us, and, and if you're taking notes, this would be your first point, is that we are to love Jesus more than anything. We see this by loving him more than we love our family. Now, this, this is a hard lesson for us, because, you know, it's particularly in a community that is very family-oriented. This is a tough, tough lesson to try to figure out. How is it that, um, I, you know, I can love Jesus and love my family? Well, here's the thing. This is what Jesus says. You better love me more than you love your family. The reason, the reason that he tells us that is because we're to follow him at all costs, right? I mean, we know that. We say we know that. But how often, church, does family matters get in the way of us serving the Lord? You know, how many college students are, are seeking the Holy Spirit and, and feeling a, a leading towards going to the mission field? And how many mamas are saying, you ain't taking my grandbabies over there. You ain't doing it. Or, you know, how many kids come to Christ and their daddy is not a believer or he at least doesn't have the fruits of it and he says, hey, you're not going to church this morning. We're going to do something else. Jesus makes it explicitly clear you must love me more than anybody else. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 to 38, it says, The person who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The person who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. A true disciple is going to love Jesus more than his family. 
we see the account of, of the men. They come running up to Jesus and said, hey, we want to follow you. And uh, Jesus says, okay, well, come on. And he says, okay, well, let me, go, let me go bury my father. And Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. And the next guy says, well, hold on, I'll follow you, but let me go say goodbye. And Jesus says, what? Anybody who turns away from the plow is not worthy of the kingdom of God. Look, this isn't coincidence. This is Christ making it explicitly clear that we must love him very first. Very first. And so, as a test, as applying ourselves to the truth of God's word, is anyone standing of the way of us serving Jesus Christ? Is anybody standing in the way of us giving, giving him our, our total? Or, let's, let's word it this way, are you or am I standing in the way of a loved one who is feeling a call to go serve the Lord? It's, it's heavy. Look, I'll be very honest. This is a, is a situation that is very near and dear to my heart. And I'll tell you, it's tough. It is so tough. To, to have a family not supportive of serving Christ with your all, is, it's a hard thing. But church, Jesus says, in order to be his true disciple, you must be willing to love him more than you love your family or your friends or your boyfriend or your girlfriend or whatever it is. So that's kind of the first characteristic of this loving Christ more than anything. Jump down with me to right to the end of verse 26. You know, he talks about hating your family, uh, your father, your mother. It says, yes, even his own life. It's telling us to hate his own life or else we cannot be his disciple. Now, what is Christ talking about? He, you know, is he telling us to all be manic depressants and, just, and to hate life and to be doom and gloom? Absolutely not. But what he is saying is, look, every one of us, on our own accord, in our fleshly person, we have wills, a will to do things, we have desires to pursue things, and we have a love of things. Hobbies, people, whatever, you know, schooling, uh, a career, a relationship, all these things. And he's saying, hate your life or you cannot be my disciple. The idea here, once again... It's, it's speaking to loving Jesus more. This is, this is loving Jesus more in action. This idea of hating ourselves. It's surrendering our will and our desires to the will of Jesus Christ. Too often people cannot surrender their life, their will, and their desires. Listen to this in Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in the field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he found one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had and bought it. This is a man who understands what it is to hate his life. This is a man that he, he came and he encountered Christ. He saw what Christ did for him. He saw that Christ rose from the dead. He sees the, the benefits of salvation and what it is to live for Christ. And what does he do? 
He sold it off. That is symbolic. You know, this is a parable. It is symbolic of getting rid of all the stuff so that we can have the precious pearl, Jesus Christ. Oh, get that imagery. Get it. Yeah, in America, we don't understand this. Because of that gray area, it cost us absolutely nothing to have salvation, according to our gospel. It cost Christ, King Jesus, it cost him everything. And what we're finding as we read his scripture is that he's calling us to just the same, to give up everything. The person of this parable got it. And I, and I challenge you, church, have we, sold, I mean, have we put off everything? Have we put off our will, our desires, our pleasures for Jesus? It's tough. I'll be real honest with you. This is something that I deal with constantly. Is there anything in my life that is an idol? Is there anything in my life that consumes more of my thought and more of my conversation than Jesus? And I'll be honest. I know this, this is going to sound silly, but this is something that I have to do with duck hunting all the time. I know it's, it's pitiful. It really is. And, and David Lentz is hiding in the, in the uh, booth up there so I can't see him. No, there he is. <laughs> Church, I caught myself being so consumed with chasing these little flapping things. Okay. I, I, I was doing all this study, and I, I mean, I had maps, I, Google Earth, I mean, doing all this scouting, door knocking, all these things for a duck, church, a duck. And the Lord hit me upside the head and said, look, how dare you, how dare you put this effort into killing a duck and not doing the same and more for seeing lost people come to Jesus Christ. You want to talk about a come to Jesus meeting, it hurt, church, but look, accepting Jesus in our lives, it's going to cost. You know, the ch we like to present the gospel as this free gift, and it is a free gift. It's free on the fact that we can do nothing to receive it, but it is an extremely costly gift, and it costs us our life. It costs us our will. It costs our desires and all these things, and we've got to be willing to surrender it. Think about the account of the young rich ruler. He comes to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. What do I have to do to have eternal life? And Jesus, you know, they're in a dialogue, and he says, okay, the Ten Commandments. And the boy says, all right, well, I got those. That's good. I'm, I checked them off. Now, he probably didn't really, but, you know, Jesus didn't really push that. But what does he say? Jesus says, okay. He says, go sell all your possessions and give them to the poor. And what did the boy do? He turned away sad because he was a man of great wealth. Now, this, this sermon is not a sermon against wealth. Hear me out. But this sermon is against anything that we would allow to stand between us and all-out service to Jesus Christ. Okay, so that was our first, our, our first point was the description of a true disciple. We see we've got to hate ourselves, our family, now, the second part of this is we must give up everything for the sake of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 27. 
Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. What in the world are you talking about, Jesus? Why are we supposed to go take this wooden thing and carry it around? Why? You know, and, and we're, we're so far out of the context that it would be hard for us to understand. But what was the very thing that Christ was killed on? It was a cross. When he died, when he was carrying that cross and then eventually nailed onto it, what was that symbolic of? Talk to me. It, yeah, it was a sin, but what, what was he doing? Remember, right before he was killed, he was in the, he was in the garden praying. <clears throat> and he said, take this cup, not my will, my, my will, but yours be done. Okay, so the, the imagery of the cross is killing yourself. Okay, once again, going back to that hating yourself. Dying to your wills, all of those things. And then taking the cross, following in the footsteps of Jesus, figuratively, but also literally, even unto death. What do we, we see in Philippians uh, chapter 1, I believe? That I may honor Christ by my life or by my death. Christ, he held nothing back. He gave it all. He died. And, and church, he is calling his true disciples to take the same stance, to hold nothing back. So how do we take up our cross? What does it look like? Let me read to you in Philippians what it says. If I can get there. I got a marker and it's still... Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 says, Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus. All right, so be like Christ who existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that that name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord, get this, to the glory of God the Father. When we are killing ourselves in this process of becoming a true disciple, taking on that cross, it's all for the will of the Father. Everything that we do, everything that we say, it should all be to the glory of God the Father. That's why Christ came to die. Yes, it was so man could be saved, but ultimately it was because man needs to be giving glory to the one true God. And that's our purpose, church. As disciples, that is our main purpose. Taking up one's cross is symbolic of putting your will aside and taking on the will of the Father even unto death. As Diedrich Bonhoeffer very famously quoted, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. And so church, I invite you, as, as we're going through what it looks like to be a true disciple, let's come and die. Let's do it. Because it's, it's not worth not doing. How about that? That's a bunch of double negatives. I know, I'm sorry if there's an English teacher here. But real quickly, all right, so that's the first point. Christ gives a characteristic, he gives distinctives of what a true disciple looks like. Our second, our second point is warning to count the cost. Read with me quickly in verses 28. For which of you wanting to build a tower doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? 
Otherwise, after he has laid the foundation and cannot finish it, all the onlookers will begin to make fun of him, saying, This man started to build and wasn't able to finish. Or what king going to war against another king will not first sit down and decide if he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000. If not, while the other is still far off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. In the same way, therefore, every one of you who does not say goodbye to all his possessions, what? What does he say? Cannot be my disciple. Number two, Christ in this, speaking to this crowd, this large crowd who more than likely are not very passionate followers of him, he says, you better count the cost. Don't you dare jump hastily into a relationship with me without first weighing out what it's going to cost you. Look at the builder. I don't, Dale's not here. If there's a builder in here, you can raise your hand if you want, but Think about it. Just imagine if I was building a house. Okay? Hastily, I, I, I decide tomorrow, hey, I'm going to build a house in that field right next to the parsonage. It's going to be great. So I build it. I start pouring that foundation. And Ashley, my, my, uh, my financial advisor, uh, she says, baby, uh, we got enough money for the rest of the concrete, but that's it. And I say, okay, okay. Uh, so I get the foundation built. And maybe, maybe we were able to tweak out some money to get the house framed. But that was it. I mean, that's dry bones budget. Every one of you is going to drive. I mean, line 39, every one of you is going to drive by it, and you're going to see me with a tent inside of my framed house living in it. And you're going to look at me and go, that preacher of ours is a fool. He didn't count the cost. You know, or, or think about the battle of, of uh, Little Bighorn. Okay, George Custer of the 7th Cavalry. One of the more blunders in our military history. The brother, was, he, was, he was used to fighting small bands of Indians. So his couple hundred men were able to take out the small bands pretty easily. I mean, pretty handedly. And they had this other, more of a, he's like the Belgium of Indians. Uh, he, was a, he was a scout for, for Custer. And uh, he, he was a neutral Indian, apparently. And, and he's, he's guiding Custer and his men and says, um, hey, just be careful. I think, uh, sitting by, I can't remember the Indian chief, but I think they've got a big crowd over there. What does Custer do, man? He rolls in hot with his few hundred men. And the reports vary, but thousands of Indians were there. And they basically just slaughtered the whole U.S. force. The brother forgot to count the cost. Foolishly, he went into battle, going into battle blind. Church, how is it that people can so hastily call on the name of Jesus Christ by going admit, believe, confess without counting the cost of knowing that it's going to cost you everything? What does it say? It says that the people were mocking the builder because he started and wasn't able to finish. Now, if you read the New Testament a lot, you're going to pick up on this theme of enduring to the end. Okay? Now, let me give you the verses. Just Matthew 10, 22, Endure to the end and you will be saved. Matthew 24, The one that endures to the end will be delivered. 2 Timothy 2, 12, If we endure, we will also reign with him. 
there's this idea that believers, if you will prove to be a true believer if you endure to the end. Okay? Claiming it when you're 12 and living like Satan the rest of your years on your deathbed, buddy, you have not endured to the end. Your life has not proved to be a child of God because more than likely, if, I mean, obviously if you live like Satan, you didn't love Jesus more than anybody else, you didn't hate yourself more than anybody else, and you didn't take up your cross. Okay? Those are the characteristics of a true believer. And, and if we don't count the cost, we're going to come up short. And the truth is, it's going to point at we never knew Jesus in the first place. We may have known who he is. We may have known about him. We may even encountered and agreed that he is the Savior. But it never changed our life. And I'm afraid that is the condition of many sitting in our churches in America. See, overseas, they don't have to worry about this. Because there isn't a gray area. You either are or you aren't. You're either a Muslim or you're a Christ follower. Okay? You know, you're, when you're a Christ follower, you get the tar kicked out of you and you get killed. So that, that kind of, that tends to thin out the group that want to claim Christ. But in America, hey, we're all, this is a Christian nation, right? Wrong. No. If this is a Christian nation, it would look a lot different based on this text. And look at that. This, this, this call to count the cost from Christ. He says, in the same way, therefore, every one of you who does not say goodbye to all his possessions cannot be my disciple. Once again, there's that cannot be. I mean, that thing is nagging us to the death through this text. You cannot be. You cannot be. It's almost like Christ wanted us to I don't know, like count the cost or something. You know, maybe look at this thing and go, maybe we should weigh this thing out. You know, the benefits of being with Jesus is great, but man, I'm going to have to give up all this. You know? Jesus, he's just begging the people, hey, stop a minute. Before you jump in and come follow me, you better know it's going to cost you. And church, that's, that's what this word's saying and that's all I can, I can shout to you. Now lastly, the third point is found in verse 34 through 35. And I've, I've actually taught this text before, and I had no clue what this verse, the last time I taught this, I had no clue what these verses were talking about. As a matter of fact, I have an arrow drawn to him and says, what does it mean? <laughs> well, thankfully... <laughs> By God's grace, he has told me what it means. Let's read it. He says, Now salt is good, but if salt should lose its taste, how will it be made salty? It isn't fit for the soil or for the manure pile. They throw it out. Anyone who has ears, hear. To hear, should hear and listen. In Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Christ calls us the salt of the earth. Salt in these days was a key ingredient for many things. Preservation, uh, fire starting. Yeah, they would put it out on roads to kill vegetation, keep the path narrow. But they said, you know, when salt loses its flavor, you know, when it no longer it has that flavor, when it's no longer able to be used, it's thrown out. In Matthew, it says it's tra- thrown out in the street and trampled by man. I've been wrestling all week with the implications of this text. 
of these, three, these two verses. Because what the, the implications of when you read it and you, you search that, that term thrown out and the way that that term is used throughout Scripture, thrown out to the lake of fire, to where there's gnashing of teeth and out into utter darkness. Church, this should scare the fire out of us. That we be so fooled because we prayed a prayer when we were a kid that we would totally ignore the scripture that says, look, if you hadn't counted the cost, if you don't look like one of these true disciples, then you're useless to me. It, that's a scary verse. You know, the New Testament, it, it, it tells us that we are to, to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. Now, you know, a lot of people think that and go, well, that's weird, I mean, because Jesus said that it's not about works. You're right. But it's saying that you need, and Lee taught, hit it a couple weeks ago, testing your salvation on a regular basis, lest you find yourself truly not saved. And I don't preach this to scare you, okay? Salvation, knowing Christ, it is, it is not a, a uh, you know, this isn't a, a scare you to death, you know, scare you to Jesus. As a matter of fact, what I think that Christ was doing here is he was just trying to get people to not follow him unless they were committed. You know, wouldn't the church be so much better? Wouldn't our testimony to the lost world be so much better if people would quit claiming Christ and living like the world? Think about it. Think about all of the stuff that happens to Christianity when a pastor falls into adultery or, you know, or some priest you know, gets caught you know, with a, a minor. Well, I mean, you know, we've got to get real. We, this call is, is a heavy call, church. And the, the invitation is, is really, it's, it's wide open. Um, because uh, it could be that you've never heard this before. And, and that you're going, what in the world is this guy talking about? Could be that you're, you call yourself a believer, but your life doesn't line up with this text. And it could be that you're a believer and that you've been sharing a watered-down version of the gospel. I mean, you know, there's, there's a lot of different places we could be this morning. In closing, I'll share with a, a brother of mine in Wilmington. Uh, his name's Zeke, and uh, he's from Mexico. He's been in the States about eight years now. And we were, our, our college ministry was playing volleyball on the campus, and he walked up and said, hey, can I play? And we said, sure, come on. So we're playing, and by the end of the night, we had hit it off, and I shared the gospel with him. Well, that started a several-month-long journey for him. He didn't, he didn't profess Christ that night. He just had a bunch of questions. And he kept coming. He'd come to hang out with us. He'd come to Bible study. He'd listen. He'd come to church. He was hearing the gospel over and over again. And it, it really came to the point where when I'd see him, I'd say, Zeke, how is your, your faith journey coming? Because what Zeke was doing is he was weighing out what it's going to cost him. Okay, Because he had a bunch of lost friends and a lost daddy that he was living with. And if he went and professed Christ, then more than likely he was going to have to sever ties with his lost friends and home life was about to get a lot harder because his daddy was disenfranchised from the church. 
And Zeke for months, he'd come and he had all these questions. He's going, I see it and I know that it's true. But I just don't know yet. And guys, it was one of the most, it was, one of, it was such a fresh thing to see somebody weighing out their salvation. Were they going to follow? He finally, after several months, he says, I've, I've, Jesus is Lord. That's what he told us. And, and he, he shared that with his, his, uh, all of his friends in a small group. And it was great. And uh, he shared it before his church, but he didn't share it with his lost friends. And church, after about a month of going strong, Zeke began to pull away. And, and we kept calling him, Zeke, where are you going, man? Where, where are you, what are you doing? And it, all of a sudden, he had to work all the time. And honestly, what it, it was this text being lived out because you know, he had been weighing out the cost and then he got there and he, he took the step into salvation and it's going, whoa, this cost is going to be tough. You know, it reminds me of the, the parable of the sower. We see the seed thrown out on the path, gets eaten up by the birds. You know, it's sown on the rocky soil, it shoots up and gets quenched because it didn't take root. It's thrown on the, among the vines and it grows up and then choked out by the worries of the world. You know, in that text, only one soil produces true fruit. Church, hear me out. This is God's word. This is not my words. This is not a very comfortable text. Because really, the, the implications of this text, it condemns a whole lot of people that would say they believe Jesus as their Savior. And so we're going to go into a time of invitation. And uh, you know, the guys can come and sing or play for us. I just want to open the altar. If, if some of you have realized that maybe, you know what, I've never counted the cost. But I realized that it is, there is no way that I could not count the cost and, and serve Christ. If that's your realization, come confess it to the Lord. Maybe some of you in here have never, ever trusted the Lord as your Savior. Count the cost. Realize it's going to take your life. It's going to change your life completely. But it is so worth it. It's that precious pearl folks and so I just ask wherever you are today allow this text you know what does he say at the bottom he says anyone who has ears to hear should listen he said that when he told almost every parable because most people they were not true followers and they weren't going to hear what he said but I'm asking you if you're seeking him and you have ears to hear please listen heed the call to cost and we'll just let the Lord uh, do what he's going to do in this time.